welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. Today, we speak with Cameron Strawn, an autistic Canadian-based writer and playwright and ex-teacher from the UK. And in this episode, we talk all about his particular experiences with diagnosis, teaching, writing, and some of the misconceptions um, surrounding humour and comedy. We also talk about the very important issue of employment discrimination and some of the key issues that need to be overcome. It was a really fascinating conversation. I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening to Cameron. I just wanted to give you a little heads up that we had a little bit of problems with the audio in this episode. I do apologise, but we've tried our best to fix some of those issues in editing and I hope it doesn't put you off from enjoying the episode which I can promise you is really really interesting and um, very important and quite impactful. Okay thanks for listening to this intro and enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Autism Podcast. Today we're delighted to have on the line Cameron Strawn. Thanks for joining, Cameron. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, so you are a writer, um, you've been a teacher, and you've had a very varied and interesting employment history. And those are some of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you, particularly with regard to employment, because we're aware that you've had some particularly interesting um, and also some challenging experiences with regard to employment and employment issues in particular employment discrimination the fear of disclosure these sorts of things they're really really important um, and problematic and I think we need to find ways to move forwards and try to get uh, employment rates improved in the autistic community Um, not just employment rates but the sort of whole experience of employment of course in the workplace etc um, but yeah before we get into some of the issues um, could you first please introduce yourself and just talk through your autism story in um, any way you wish thank you Cameron okay well my name's Cameron Strawn I was born in Godrich Ontario Canada and um, I was misdiagnosed at the age of two when I was showing obvious signs of autism that was back at a time when autism was um, poorly understood, especially in my area, which is quite rural. Um, to make a long story short, I um, became very interested in the outdoors, in particular fish. That was my special interest, uh, water, fish, anything to do with water. So I became a fisheries biologist for a while. I worked in the environmental sector for years, but I really like writing. Um, it's my preferred mode of communication. Uh, I think because I can actually study carefully what I'm going to say and really plan it, I feel more in control when I'm writing something. And I do enjoy the use of words and learning new words. I have sort of a fascination with words and syllables. And uh, so I became a technical writer, did quite a lot of scientific writing as well, and then gradually got more into science communication. I I sort of uh, enjoyed communicating with the public, sharing my skills and expertise regarding the environment. So I got more into science communication, which led me to do a master's in environmental studies. And then that sort of got me closer into teaching, teaching young people about the environment, well, science and biology. And that led me to working in the UK for 12 years as a teacher. Very interesting. Um, Why the UK? Well, I... When I graduated from Teachers College, there weren't very many or any jobs actually for teachers in Canada, very few. So I decided, uh, and I was offered something in New York, 
but I already lived and worked in New York, and I, I felt what I wanted to do is travel more, because at that point, I, I'd only ever been to uh, Brazil and Cuba. I hadn't traveled much at all. So I wanted to go to England, because I had distant relatives from England. I could get an ancestry visa, and I really wanted to travel. I'm a photographer. It's yet another special interest of mine. 35 millimeter photography, though, black and white is my, my preference, but I wanted to travel a lot and just take photos and uh, see a lot of historic sites and all the places I'd read about and seen in movies, so on and so forth. So um, I moved to the UK, maybe maybe primarily to travel and see the world, but uh, also I ended up staying for 12 years because there was quite a lot of work for teachers, so a lot of opportunities. You mentioned earlier to me that your sort of employment history and your journey to diagnosis were interlinked. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yes, I was um, doing some research on autism, trying to differentiate some of my lessons to service some of the autistic students in my classroom. And I remember I, I came across a YouTube video on, um, I think it was called, Why Do Autistic People Stem? And I, I'd never heard the term before. And I watched the video and it was just this light bulb moment. I just watched it and I went, you know, that, that they're actually describing a behavior I've had for years and I never understood it. And I was always really embarrassed by it. And then I realized that I thought that, you know, I must be autistic. So I did several online surveys. I gathered a lot of information and um, I decided it was a good idea to go forward, make an appointment for my GP to be referred uh, for diagnosis because being sort of very science-minded, I, I wanted to make sure, be certain. And uh, it took a long time, maybe almost a year. But in May of um, 2017, I was seen by an NHS psychologist and I was diagnosed with autism. Well, at the time they called it autistic spectrum disorder and at the time they called it Asperger's syndrome profile. I was 48 at the time I was diagnosed, so I mean, it was interesting. It, it was, I think, mainly positive, but it, it, it was an interesting feeling to, to learn something brand new about yourself at the age of 48. And I found that I, I had to, I found myself thinking about myself as pre-diagnosis and post-diagnosis. I sometimes struggled to remember what the old Cameron was like, because uh, I felt as though I had to let go of the armor I had worn for years to sort of protect myself. Some people call it masking. I, I call it a suit of armor that I was wearing because it takes a lot of work and effort to maintain it. Um, I, I had to sort of let that go and, and, and gradually be comfortable with myself as an autistic person. So it did take quite a bit of effort. I felt as though the very foundations of my personality I had had for so long sort of were crumbling. And I sort of thought, you know, for a while I had this strange feeling, well, who am I now? What what do I do now with this information? Um, and it, it took me a while to, to get through that, but um, it, it was a very interesting uh, feeling, a sensation. I mean, now it's now, you know, three years later. Um, yeah, definitely. It's just over three years later. Actually, I, I feel much, much more comfortable with it now. I, I know how to manage things and um, I know my rights uh, and so on and so forth and I've done a lot of research, spoke with other autistic people, joined a lot of chat rooms, read a lot of scientific papers 
and uh, I kept my. I like to think I've kept open-minded in reaching out to different sources and trying to communicate and share with other people, share my experiences. So, um, yeah, it, it's been. It's now very positive. Yeah, I feel much more secure with the diagnosis for sure. Hi, Cameron. Uh, Hi, James. Here. Um, I'd just like to pick up on a few points that, that you mentioned because um, I'm also diagnosed autistic at the age of 45. So in in a similar kind of boat, I also didn't have any clue until um, I had a my son was diagnosed, and I suddenly realised sort of through him, through looking at the connection I have with him, and it's suddenly uh, what you described. It it seems to be a very uh, common feeling of, of like almost a, a revelation when it it dawns on on you. It's suddenly there's a reason for all these events that we've experienced in our life that maybe make us not quite fit in with the world around us and make yes. us slightly different. Um, have you found yourself connecting with other autistic people? Um, and, that, you know, there's a quite a big auti autistic community online. I definitely did in the UK. Um, I, mm. I actually joined a meetup group in the UK that met in London. It was one of the, the biggest groups on meetup.com and that was really good <clears throat> excuse me yeah and yes I, I've been on some Facebook groups but um mm. I don't think Facebook is quite right for me really I um, uh, I'm not I have to admit I'm not the greatest with social media but um, I do like reddit um, I prefer reddit because it seems to be more about writing and giving long detailed answers and um, I find Reddit to be very respectful and um, there seems to be more time for analysis, if that makes sense. So I do prefer Reddit. I, I'm no longer involved with very many Facebook related groups, but that's, you know, my own uh, decision, uh, personal decision. But um, I ha let me think. I haven't found any. Uh, I live in fairly, uh, well, a fairly remote place at the moment. I haven't found any groups for autistic adults that I can join in on. Um, there aren't as many. In fact, in Canada, there aren't the opportunities there are for people in the UK. Uh, I notice Canada is a little bit further behind. I mean, Canada is still developing its uh, national autistic strategy. Um, I mean, they're they're about to formally start developing that actually. So, um, a little bit behind the UK in that regard. It interests me. Um that you mentioned Reddit, um, I think autistic people find connections much easier through shared interests. Yes, definitely. When I was in high school, I remember this vividly, I, I um, rightly or wrongly, I judged people by what their interest in music was. I, I was just a fanatic. I was into sort of uh, new wave alternative music, what they call alternative, this is in the 80s, and uh, very passionate about that and wearing the t-shirts and everything uh, and the posters so to me it was like a badge that the music I wore the t-shirts was like a badge it was sort of you know, I was hoping other people would see it and we'd have a common ground something to talk about because beyond the music or movies perhaps um, there wasn't really a lot for me to talk about with other people other than schoolwork if I went to a party and <laughs> and I did Go try going to some parties when I was in high school. Interesting experience, but um, my conversation had to mainly rotate around my love of culture, which 
I was very into like a certain culture though I was um, very into certain music and certain movies and everything sort of revolved around that so that's how I made friends and to be honest I think that persists into university um, my the way I dressed and my interests all had related to my taste in music and, and to lesser degree perhaps film so um, that was very important I I really needed that and I, and I actually started to realize the limitations of that because I remember wondering why people were drifting away from me and I sort of thought and this is way before I was diagnosed I sort of thought that people seemed to be moving on pairing up getting married and and developing other interests whereas I seem stuck with these certain interests and uh, I began to wonder well am I evolving really am I um, you know, what am I doing really? But um, to be honest, my taste in music and my style to certain degrees hasn't changed a lot since the late 80s. I, I still like all the bands I liked way back in the late 70s, actually. Um, and some of the movies as well I liked throughout the 80s. I'm, I, I'm like that. I don't let go of special interests. I might veer away from them for a while, but I'll always come back to them later. But I have noticed that, to make a long story short, that even talking to someone at a party, there there is a moment where they, uh, that topic's been expended. It's uh, I can't go on anymore with it, and the person becomes tired with it, and will want to move on to something else, or perhaps talk to someone else. So, um, yeah, that in a roundabout way, that's kind of been my experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think we we rely on the topics that we that we know very well because um, we do tend to struggle with um, small talk in conversation and that kind of thing. Would you agree with that? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, even with my experience, I, I, I used to think I did well at interviews. I mean, obviously I've been employed in the past, but um, what I mean to say, I, I, I thought I knew what I was doing, but recently I, I spoke to a really good employment counselor. I, I've spoken to quite a few employment counselors lately. Like I said, I'm I'm more willing now to reach out and ask for help. To me, that's a very big move. I've never been able to do that in the past, but I'm willing to do it. But I, I spoke to an employment counselor, and she told me, and, and to me this is brand new information, that during an interview, what I was doing was talking about my skills and qualifications in great detail and how I can apply them to a job. I'm, I'm good at that. But actually what the employer is looking for in the interview they're looking at me and thinking, is he going to get along with everyone else at work? Is he going to be a team player and work well with everyone else and be diplomatic, so on and so forth? So while I, I can do that, what, what they're looking for actually is social skills, which are totally separate from the job description. They're not even in the job description. They're like hidden. And I, I didn't recognize these social cues. And it turns out I was, for years, I've been... It's a bit embarrassing to admit to, but I, I'm still learning about these things I've been missing for years. These, everyone else takes them for granted, these social cues. And I wasn't aware of it because I thought in an interview, they have my CV and I talk about my skills and experience and what I can apply to the job. And I know I can do the job and I tend to put 110% into everything I do. Um, and yet I wasn't getting jobs, so I suppose maybe the reason is they, I don't know if they picked up on something that sort of thought I was a, 
maybe I wouldn't fit in in their particular work culture. Um, but in fact, I think any autistic person has a special skill or ability in any line of work, really. Um, I think there has to be more acceptance and understanding by far, especially with autistic adults, because we're misunderstood based on everything I've read. And, and I think it's pretty easy to accommodate someone, really. It's not difficult. Um, I don't think it's difficult to do, to accommodate them and allow them to use their special interests or skill, and which could be very powerful for a company, uh, generating new ideas, unique problem solving, being creative. Um, I don't know about yourself, but when I'm allowed to participate, use my skills, abilities, as opposed to a social aspect, if I have a functional role, I'll feel a part of the team that I'm doing some good and I will feel really good and confident. But what I need is for people to ask me what they want from me so I can apply my skill or ability or give them a resource or help them. So I actually really do enjoy helping people. But um, yeah, it all comes down though to sharing skills and abilities and knowledge um, as opposed to um, uh, having an emotional talk or, or small talk. I'm not as good at that. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we all have the right to feel useful, right? And yes. once we feel useful, it's really good for our mental health as well um, but, and our self-esteem. You know, I've, I've definitely found that um, working with Chris in the charity, I couldn't ask for more, really. Um, and I'm very lucky. And I think um, all neurodivergent people deserve that. Um, and I'm really glad we, we see autistic people like yourself speaking out about it now. And then we'll carry on campaigning until a lot more companies start to accommodate people. I think some are listening now and yes. there needs to be more, you know. One yeah. thing I, I really like to deal with is um, uh, the, the feeling of detachment I have. And I've spoken about this with counselors and they convinced me I should write about how I cope with this feelings mm -hmm. of detachment. So I did do a very long blog post outlining everything I did to deal with my feelings of detachment, my feelings of being of otherness, of not being a part of things. Mm. Um, I am very interested in that, how people cope with that and sharing ideas to help. Because what it does, it, it does reduce my stress and anxiety. Um, and I find my mind, what I've realized is I'm, I'm better being at home writing. My mind's always working, whether I want it to or not. And I, if I'm always creating or generating things or sharing ideas, um, it's like releasing a pressure in my mind. It releases my stress and anxiety. But if I'm idle, if I'm not given the chance, um, or I feel as though I can't be confident and put some ideas out there and write something, I'll, I will become very stressed and anxious or even depressed. So that's why I do so much writing. Like right now, especially during the pandemic, I've been extremely, uh, very, very productive researching and writing and just and doing online studies just I need to keep my mind busy at all times really that that helps me cope it seems to work really well and that, that's a fantastic coping strategy um, and I'm sure people listening to this autistic people will be able to take that on board and hopefully use that um, just wondered if Chris do you have any thoughts about yes Cameron you mentioned that you perhaps didn't give enough consideration to the sort of 
social interactions, the social cues, the sorts of things that employers are often thinking during interviews and weighing up, you know, is he going to fit in? Is he going to be a good team player, etc., etc.? And I think you've really hit upon something absolutely key there when it comes to employment and employment discrimination in particular. Because, as you say, employers are often thinking of it in that wrong and biased way. You know, they should be thinking about, you know, who has the skills, who has the potential and the competencies actually needed for the particular job that they're hiring for, and who is actually meeting the desirable and essential criteria that they've already preset. But actually, when you get to the interview panel, it is indeed so often, unfortunately, about panelists' unconscious bias towards who they like as a person, you know, who they who they feel they'd like to see, you know, day to day and who they feel that's going to be a good team fit. And I really think that's just such a big problem. Um, you know, that bias, that mindset towards people who just seem and, f- you know, appear more socially skilled i really think that needs to be challenged explicitly this this problem of unconscious bias in that way you know that's a nonsense that's preventing a lot of autistic and neurodivergent people i think accessing employment and it's preventing a lot of social good ultimately because if you're bringing in people that you feel you like the best as opposed to the people who are technically and objectively the best in relation to what's actually needed for the job well, that's going to have um, a negative impact on society, on economies, as we're seeing. You know, that frankly really annoys me, and I think employers really need to, you know, change their game in that respect. Um, And I speak with personal experience as someone who's sat on many interview panels and seen this. You know, I've seen a lot of panellists say, oh, you know, I really like that person, you know, I think they'd make a great, great team player and they fit well and he seems funny or she seems funny blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I'm proud to say that, you know, I do always try to push back on that and say, yeah, you know, okay, they do seem nice, but, you know, they don't fit the criteria. You know, let's call it for what it is. This isn't a friend contest. You know, this is a, you know, a hiring of a job. And we've got to be fair and equal. So I really think, you know, that you've really touched on something that's so important and key to all, you know, to many of the problems that we're seeing you know, and that ultimately we need to push back and, you know, make this process fairer for everyone. It's extremely confusing. I mean, that's why I recently started this petition in Canada. But it's confusing because as an autistic person, I like to have the details up front on paper. Like if I apply for a job, I apply for it based on the details in the job application, the skills and experience and education they're looking for. Now, if I come in an interview and they're looking for something totally different, I'm I'm just not going to be prepared for that. I, it, it'll go over my head, so to speak. But on the other hand, I've actually worked in environments like I've I've had quite a few jobs in my life. I've been lucky that way, and worked in you know I have to be honest. I've worked in a variety of sectors, and I've worked with a lot of good people. But I have worked in environments where I come in and I'm nothing but skills and abilities, putting 110 percent in, and and but other people are more uh, relying on the social aspects. And, and I did notice that it can create sort of a tension in the workplace, a bit of animosity and misunderstandings. And that's something I usually, fortunately, only realize months later when I reflect and reflect upon it. But um, it is something that needs to be dealt with. And um, I, I think in the UK, access to work is such a good program. 
it deals with those issues and I would like Canada to have something similar to that which is the basis of my petition but I agree with you fully there's a lot of work to be done yeah fully agree and just the other point to make about it is that you know it's a misconception to think you know from the employer's point of view that this person isn't going to fit in or be sociable you know it's tough for people during interviews it can be very nerve-wracking there's a lot of anxiety and so you can't really judge people very effectively based on that one interview alone in terms of their personality and that sort of side of things so i think you just have to give people a chance sometimes especially if they're meeting the criteria and they're the type of person you do technically need in terms of skills and competencies and you think they've got the potential to push things forwards and also, of course, and very importantly, there isn't anything to suggest that an autistic person wouldn't fit in anyway. You know, you can make reasonable adjustments and things can work very, very, very well. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of autistic people have told us previously, and there is some research that also backs this up, that they are afraid of declaring um, on paper uh, before the interview or during the interview that they're autistic in fear of being negatively labelled and judged. And to be honest with you, I think they'd probably often be right in finding that, yes, unfortunately, panellists do uh, often negatively label and push back. And, you know, that's just not right. And you would never be made uh, aware of that if that did happen to you. Um, No one's going to admit to doing that. Um, I've encountered that myself. Like, I've thought that maybe I'm taking a risk by... You know, I, I try to be proactive and do things like the petition that, you know, maybe taking a risk if an employer knew in advance that I was autistic. But um, I'm, I'm trying to overcome that fear because I, I, I don't think it's helpful. I really want to get over that feeling. And, um, and I'm working with some agencies right now that I said to them, look, my ideal position is for me to go in. They know I'm autistic, make some accommodations, and I will blossom within that atmosphere and I've always made friends at work I I get along well with people we you know have some common interests and so on and so forth so um and I actually see some signs that this is gradually changing like um I've been speaking with specialist turn recently it's an employment agency that started in Denmark I believe and they're in Toronto and Canada as well and they told me uh, when I spoke to the Toronto office they outlined what they're doing to get people, autistic people into work, like meaningful work, work in the financial sector and various other jobs. And what they told me was just, it was like a dream come true. I, I couldn't get over it. Everything she told me was like ticking a little box in my mind. And what they do is they do away with that interview altogether. They bring an autistic person in and they do a series of workshops to sort of ease them in. And then the workshops are on site with the employer and they get a chance to slowly and gradually show their skills, and then they get into a position with the employer, and they've proven themselves, and, and they know they're autistic, and they can accommodate them, and then they'll have a chance to blossom and grow and be confident within um, that environment. Because I just read a study, I'm always reading studies, that uh, in university students, if they declare early on in their career they're autistic, their outcomes in university are, are far better than students that declare much later in their university career, maybe not at all. So I think psychologically it does help to get that. Um, it, it does for me anyway. You know, it's a personal issue. Some people are against it, but it would help me to get it off my chest because I'm a very honest person. 
Um, but in the past, I have waited, actually, I have to admit, I, for teaching roles, I would wait until I decided, yes, I'm going to need a few accommodations. And then I would speak to management and I would have a list of accommodations. I used the National Autistic Society's document. They had a template and I used that to list all my accommodations. And I was told the accommodations were uh, perfectly all right. They were manageable. So there were no issues there. You, t you touched on... Um maybe masking for people that that maybe aren't as compelled to be honest as you are Cameron um, maybe you know if this is an issue that employers could take on board that um, somebody that is coming in could could be masking their autism and you know almost every day trying to prepare a script to yes to in their mind to um, have these conversations and try and fit in but also, employers need to recognize how difficult that is, you know, because having that is is such a, a buildup of stress and all, it can lead to all kinds of other sort of mental illnesses through the stress of that. So it is incredibly important what you're saying for people is, to be honest, you yeah. know, earlier rather than later, you know. Well, actually, they, they have to be empowered and feel safe to do it, though. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to call them dishonest. Um, I've spoken yeah. to quite a wide range of autistic people. Some people have legitimate good reasons for wanting to hide it. But, um, um, yeah, I personally don't I don't want to feel ashamed about it myself. Mm. You know, I, I'm hoping, I, I feel that things are improving. Now, it, it might ideally, maybe it won't even be in my lifetime, but let's hope it will be. But um, I hope there'll become a time when it just it isn't an issue anymore. I, I think that day is going to come. I mean, a lot of companies are actually looking for autistic employees, going out of the way to find them, actually. Um, oh, I had another point there. Oh, yes, you mentioned the, the amount of work masking, or I said wearing a suit of armor. It, to me, it's mm -hmm. like having a second job, and it's 24-7. Um, yeah. People don't realize that when I came home from work, I was ready to go to bed at 8 p.m. I was so exhausted. Um, and it's not only preparing the scripts and acting a certain way, fitting in with the neurotypical templates, but it's also um, going over the minutia of the day, what I did wrong, what I can improve. Um, and people, I think people might have trouble grasping uh, the, the, the degree to which I'm self-critical. And, and um, I, 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 I think there's things I need to improve or pick up on and uh in order to fit in and do better and excel and 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 satisfy the people around me really uh, i think that's absolutely spot on i think um that really opens a whole can of worms because now we're talking about the labels that we carry for all our lives and they start right back in childhood so uh, absolutely i agree with you 100 percent. yeah okay thanks so much for that oh you're welcome yeah, so we'd really like to hear a little bit about your recently released book, which is titled The Surreal Adventures of Anthony Zen, 23 Interconnected Short Stories. And I know that you've got a particular motivation behind publishing the book. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is this is a bugbear of mine. I find this very frustrating. I've read, uh, like I said, I read a lot of journal articles, and it's even in the scientific journals, and it's in newspapers, uh, the question, do autistic people have a sense of humor? Or in some cases, that, that's actually the question I most often say, or, or what, you know, what do they find funny? Do they understand jokes? I've seen these questions. 
to me, it's that's always been. Uh, I understand where it's coming from because there's certain jokes that I may not get, but I I just don't find are funny, and other people do for some reason. I can appreciate that. Sense of humor is incredibly subjective, more so than taste in music. I believe uh, it's to each their own. But um, yeah, I have a very absurd, droll, dry, um, like a surreal sense of humor. I tend to. You know, growing up, I was really in the Second City and Saturday Night Live, and then Monty Python, and um, that that's and Kafka. I find some Kafka can be funny as well. I that's sort of the sort of humor I'd like, really. And I've always had that um, sense of humor. So uh, what I've done is th these short stories. Um, I, I recently put them all together. The the paperbacks coming out July first of this year because that's joke day in the United States. It's also Canada Day. So I thought, oh, pretty good time to release it. And I think in this day and age of the pandemic, people could use some good humor. So the stories were published in student papers long ago, but I've updated them all, added new material and added some connective material and put them all together in a collection. And um, yeah, I, I really want to show people that um, uh, Autistic people obviously do have a, a sense of humor, and I've been told my sense of humor is, uh, um, well, people, I, I, I don't want to be immodest, they enjoy the stories, they find, uh, often people tell me they're fun, they're a fun read, so on and so forth, so I, I think there's definitely an audience for that, and I want to help alleviate this misconception. Um, I don't hear of too many autistic comedians, I mean, there is one in Canada who's got quite a bit of press, a young fellow, and that's that's great. And there's a, a comedic troupe in the United States called Asperger's Are Us. And they've got quite a lot of publicity, an HBO documentary based on them. They do sort of skits, very much like uh, Saturday Night Live, SCTV, Monty Python. In fact, their sense of humor is sort of similar to my own. Uh, and actually, I've done a lot of reading. There are autistic people out there that have my same droll, surreal, absurd sense of humor. Like, I have a certain comic sensibility. I'm not into um, j typical jokes or one-liners. I, I could never do that. I um, um, and I don't like a lot of sexual humor either, or swearing or things like that, or a lot of what they call toilet humor. I just have this certain comedic sensibility, and other people do share it. But I, just, I think it was just yesterday I read a scientific paper. Someone studied sense of humor in teenage, I think it was teenage boys with autism, and they found that uh, what they recommended at the end of the uh, scientific paper is um, it, it's not, of course, not fair to say autistic people lack a sense of humor. It's just that their sense of humor is what we could consider atypical. It's not a, a sense of humor shared by, you know, necessarily all or the majority of neurotypical people um, to a certain degree. And, and what they talked about is when someone tells a joke, and I found this in the past, I'd have to force myself to laugh, to be, you know, to be social and and be nice to people. But sometimes a joke has a certain social, cultural, or emotional context, like a big picture you need to know about. And since I wasn't aware of that big picture, um, I, I, I either didn't get it, or quite often I did get it, but I... I, I tend to think about logical terms. I think, well, I understand the joke, but I just don't find it funny. But I know what you're trying to do. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say, I have quite a 
complex view of, 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 of humor, but um, of course I don't agree that autistic people have no sense of humor. If given the chance, especially with my writing, I'm, I'm funnier with my writing than I'm in person by far. Um, uh, I wish I was funnier in person, but um, my written word is that that's when I use my humor and that's a way for me, it's such a, a coping mechanism for, it's crucial. This book, The Surreal Adventures at the Zen, it's, it's humor, but it's, it, it's how I cope. Uh, and the book is actually, it, it, when I look back on the stories post-diagnosis, um, post I, I realized that the character Anthony Zen was like my alter ego and his adventures were the adventures of an autistic person because I began to see in those stories the sort of features of what I call my own private autism, uh, my own unique executive function, my relationships with people, relationships with parents, uh, 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 job-related um, uh, happenings and how I view life it's it's all in those stories oh that sounds absolutely fantastic just the point about the misconception that autistic people can't possibly get humor and so forth uh, we've got a good friend of ours who has kindly supported our charity a number of times called Robert White uh, he's an autistic comedian here in the UK and he came second in Britain's Got Talent a few years ago uh, which is a very large and very popular, uh, well-known talent uh, TV show here in the UK, and he is just absolutely hilarious. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I'll have to look it up. It, I'll have to look it up. Oh, okay, yeah, you should, you should, because he is living proof that autistic people, of course, can be funny and understand humour. I mean, it's ridiculous to think otherwise. As you say, it's a very subjective thing. I I take it very personally because I take humour... Seriously, um, Steve Martin famously said, well, one of, names, one of his comedy albums was um, Comedy Isn't Pretty, something like that. And, and he's right, because it's a coping mechanism. It, comedy, in my case, it can come from a dark place. But what I'm trying to get it out, though, and by uh, looking at it um, using humor, I'm trying to uh, have a light touch with it and relate to other people by... Um, having a humorous look at it you know I, I think it's such a great coping it's something I take really serious it's my one of my absolute main coping mechanisms I I have to do it I I, I actually don't write to I have no hopes of being famous or making a lot of money not at all because I've been doing it since 1989 and that hasn't happened but it it's helping me I, I need to get these things thoughts out of my head and I enjoy communicating them with other people in a fun way, not a, you know, not a, a negative sort of complaining way. Yeah, absolutely, Cameron. Um, just to pick up on that point, um, in the UK, um, we during the lockdown period, um, there's been um, a series of Facebook live streams by an organization called uh, Lava Elastic, and it's all ab about connecting people in the community with um, autistic culture. There are poets, there are comedians, uh, and we, you're able to watch that live, you know, on or go to their Facebook page and, and the videos are on there. So um, it, it shows you that people might not understand us, but we, might, we may be a different subculture, but we definitely have our own brand of humor and we've made it our own, you know. Yes. Well, even um, uh, I was a bit surprised people criticize them for this. Uh, 
um, as you're probably aware, Jerry Seinfeld said in an interview that he could be on somewhere on the spectrum. And um, I, I thought that was an interesting comment because his sense of humor, which I've seen on his sitcom Seinfeld, is very similar to my own. It's sort of a droll, dry, observational sense of humor that it's based on everyday mundane things that I'm able to blow out a proportion for comic effect and not based on one-liners or obvious things. Like, I don't really like obvious humor, if that makes sense. But, um, yeah, that, I mean, there are examples out there, definitely. It's slowly that stigma's going away. But, I mean, even last year there was articles titled Do Autistic People Have a Sense of Humor? And I always sort of go, you know, I sort of, oh, I just... I, I, you know, hopefully, I think gradually we'll stop seeing that sort of thing, I'm hoping. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the criticism that Seinfeld experienced comes from a misunderstanding of what autism looks like. And I think that's being re-examined all the time now. Yes. And it's based on those old labels of low, you're either low-functioning or you're high-functioning. And all the people in between fall through the cracks and they don't get the support that they need. Uh, and that's probably why uh, people like you and me maybe didn't get diagnosis earlier, you know. Oh, you're absolutely right. I, I do. You said fall between the cracks. I've used that metaphor before. That's exactly how I feel. Um, um, I, I've heard autistic adults describe themselves as being like ghosts as well. Uh, very misunderstood really yeah i just want to say kudos to you for having such a fantastic motivation behind the book you know in our charity and this podcast you know it's all about pushing back against autism stigma and those many offensive misconceptions associated with that and that is certainly one of them um, another comedian you may want to look into is dr kate fox she's an autistic comedian here in the uk uh, she's on twitter a lot as well and quite popular so yeah, you might want to check her profile out too. Yeah, look, yeah. I may I may have heard of her, and like I said, there is. Um, I wish I could remember his name. There's a young man in Canada, stand-up comedian who has Asperger's. Um, I think he has. I, I sort of want to give him a plug. I mean, there are people out there. I think he has. Um, I think he has a Twitter account called Aspie Com Comic. Aspie Comic C O M I C. But um. Yeah, they're out there, and it's really good because they're helping defeat that stigma. And like I said, there's the group in the U.S. called Asperger's R Us, doing the, the live skit comedy. They do a live show. They tour around. And uh, HBO did a documentary on them a while ago. So, no, there are definitely signs of change. Cameron, um, was that guy you mentioned, was his name Michael McCreary? Uh, yeah, yeah, that is it. I, yes, yeah, I, I'm really I bad I, with names. I apologize. Uh, so am I, but, but I, so am I, but I, I do remember that because um, of the the comic. For some reason, Aspie comic. When you mentioned that name, yes, I remember the name. So yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's right. good. He's ideal for. Um, the, I, I think he's written a book. I I've read the reviews. I looked at it. It's really geared towards a, a young adult market, I believe, uh, which I think is crucial because people around his age. You know, uh, they need to see examples of where they're going to go um, because at the age of 18 in Canada, uh, they lose funding. It's, it's a bit of a long story. And my, with my petition, I'm trying to do something about this. 
after the age of 18, there's sort of not as much available as they go into the university and, you know, into adulthood and into a career, hopefully. So uh, people like that can be a really good um, role model, definitely. And Absolutely. hopefully there'll be more of them. Yes, more of them. Because I'm really sure my sense of humor, I know it's it's definitely atypical. Like I said, it's real and absurd. Um, it has some commonalities with other people, but it's I mean, quite original. I do my own thing. But um, I have a feeling a lot of autistic people would have really interesting things to say uh, when it comes to comedy and communicating uh, their experiences to people via comedy. Absolutely. I agree totally. And also about what you said about role models are so important, autistic role models, not just for autistic people, but also for the parents to see what autism looks like and how yeah. it's changed from the past and then transfer that and, and look at their own children differently, uh, maybe differently to what they've been told by the so-called medical professionals who tend to focus on the deficits, you know, and, and maybe see a different future for their for their children, a more positive one than, than what they were, they were told. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I, I see, I don't know how you feel about it, but unfortunately I see the media landscape surrounding autism. It, it seems to me to be, be a bit on the negative side. Um, and when I read about the history of autism, like right now, I've read a lot of papers, like I said, but right now I'm, I'm reading Neurotribes, which is... Um, you might be aware of it, it's sort of a Bible for a lot of autistic people. It's a very well-researched book, but yes. the the history of autism and autism research, um, it, it, it fascinates me in that it's been full of so many misconceptions and negative connotations and connections and infighting. Uh, I, may, you know, maybe there's an example of another syndrome, if I can call it that, that's the history of it's similar, but it seems to me it's had... A really rough history, if I can put it that way. I'm sort of talking in broad strokes, but um, it, if that, does that make sense? It seems to um, the history, like I mean, it used to be associated with schizophrenia, for example, yes. and all these other things. And we're, I think, we're still actually moving away from that. Some of the negative perceptions of autism, and uh, I still feel that's happening, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, definitely in the media. There's a lot of work to do, um, a, a lot of disconnect between the reality um, from an autistic person's point of view uh, and, and what comes out in the, in the news media, in the sort of tabloid press and that kind of thing. But there are sort of glimmers of hope um, there are now. Well, there's a lot of autistic bloggers now. Yes. There's, for people that, that might be curious um, who haven't been diagnosed and, and want to learn about autism. There's a lot of people writing. There's, there's also a lot of podcasts now like our own, and that's what this podcast is all about, really. I blog myself. I've been doing it for, I think, five, six years now. Six years, I guess. And I do blog about, I call it my own private autism. Uh, because each, you know, basically everything I've read and what I've found and I mean, spoken to a lot of autistic people, each autistic person is unique, um, which I actually think that's another thing the general public has trouble grasping, is that each person is unique. And uh, 
there's only a, a, to a certain degree do they share the same features. But um, yeah, I do enjoy blogging. It's been really helpful, a great experience. Yeah, I absolutely agree that everyone's unique. And um, there's that saying, um, if you've seen one autistic person, <laughs> yeah. then you've seen one autistic person. And I think that's yes. is, is absolutely true. And I think... Um, Definitely. I think, I think when eventually when people re-examine re the process of diagnosis, I think that needs to be looked at then and, and impressed upon the professionals, you know, when coming up with new diagnostic criteria so that less people fall through the cracks, you know, in, in the future. Yeah. Okay, so Cameron, where can people find your book? How can they access it? Well, the the paperback copy will be released July 1st. Uh, right now it is on Kindle as an ebook. Uh, currently it's, um, I, I, I guess I could email you some links. I, I won't give you a link right now verbally. That, that's always so, I find that so confusing, difficult to follow, but it's available on kin on Amazon. That is a Kindle ebook. And, okay. um, my blog is called, it's my first and last name.com Cameron com. Uh, well, it's actually called Trapped on a Rock Floating in Space, but um, there's information about it there as well. Sounds great. We'll certainly put in all of the links um, to the book and everything else uh, in the podcast notes area so that people can pick that up. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, no worries at all. No, all the thanks go to you for publishing the book with such an important aim of pushing back against such a offensive misconception. I appreciate that. Oh, and you also mentioned that you're working on a play and that you've had support from the organization Mainspring, who we actually interviewed in the last episode of the podcast, who are a absolutely fantastic um, organization who support neurodivergent people to develop and publish their art. Could you tell us a little bit about your involvement with them? Oh, yes, gladly. I, I joined, I think it was in uh, December of... 2018 i joined their workshop um they had a, well, first of all mainspring operates uh, a play script workshop and then they operated also i think they did a short story program as well i i really I, what i did is i went looking for places that accept writing from autistic people because it's a passion of mine and i came upon their workshop for play scripts and it was really serendipitous because i few months previous had just written a play script that my brother uh, convinced me to send to um, a fringe festival in Hamilton, Ontario. And it wasn't accepted, but it, it was in the style of my absurd, surreal humor. And actually it was about Anthony Zen, the character my book's about. But when I read about Mainspring, I thought it was just a fantastic opportunity I had to apply. And so luckily I got into it. And um, it was a really big confidence boost for me. Um, at a time when I was really overwhelmed at work because teaching in the UK is a lot of overtime. It's stressful for neurotypical people, let alone an autistic person. But um, uh, it really helped me a lot manage stress and anxiety. And I felt very confident. And the workshops were very well done and thoughtful with um, everything laid out. The lighting and everything was just right for autistic people, I felt. And there was, I think, about five autistic playwrights there, some with previous experience, some with no experience, a real variety. And uh, 
I ended up, to make a long story short, I ended up writing a play script called Bear Mask about a, a man who's worn a bear mask his entire life, which is like a metaphor for autism. Um, and his parents decide, and his friend, they're going to have an intervention. It's time for him to finally lose the mask and get on with his life. And he's sort of thinking, well, you know, maybe I should to help, you know, satisfy my family. And he he comes, he, he has a counselor who's a little bit dubious at first. This counselor gives him some advice and he's beginning to think I should lose the mask. But he discovers there's a doppelganger out there who's also dressed exactly like him, wearing a bear mask just like his. And it's become very famous on YouTube and is on his way to making a fortune with his bear mask comedy routine. And the man becomes so frustrated, doesn't understand why do I have to change and he isn't. Why does he have the career that I don't? And he decides he needs to um, think really about what he needs to do carefully. And he needs to go and meet this person, this doppelganger. And that's what the play's about. And it's my surreal, absurd humor. Um, so it's a humor. It's, it's, it's definitely humor. Once again, that's my specialty. Well, that sounds fantastic. And it's going to be released later this year, is it? They've been in touch with the local playhouse who's interested in showcasing not just my play of course but all uh, five I think there's four or five other plays um, all we're, we will all be showcased together everyone that was in that workshop their play will be showcased and presented on stage by actors and directors um, some of them on the spectrum as well so um, I don't want to steal their thunder <laughs> but I will say it's an excellent program and I think they're looking for charitable status. Uh, they mentioned an email. So I like to try to keep in touch with them. And I do hope they get it. it I think it I think it needs to uh, continue because, uh, yeah, it did me a lot of good. It just boosted my confidence. And I became really interested in playwriting as well, which I didn't think I I would do. But um, And I have ideas for other plays. So um, it was very inspirational. I, I really enjoyed it, definitely. Oh, that sounds great. And it's just fantastic that they had such a positive impact on you and were able to channel and support your creativity so that, you know, it can then go on to have impact on others. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Cameron, and you're a really fascinating and highly talented person. Everything you've said, James and I agree with. Uh, You've raised a lot of important points and I just want to thank you for that. James, is there anything else from your side? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I'd just like to say thank you so much, Cameron. It's been a real honour to speak to you. Um, Oh, thank you, James. I'd really love to see that play of yours one day. Sounds brilliant. It was so Um, much fun, Mainsprings. It was a great programme. I hope uh, you continue to write and you continue, you know, to to let your voice be heard because that's really important oh i will definitely yes okay thank you so much for talking with us today cameron i wish you all the very best for the future it's been a real honor and pleasure talking with you Uh, please stay safe and keep well and hopefully we'll talk again soon yes thanks chris and james okay bye for now